Criminal Magic, Chapter 3. Friday, 1.31 GMT-8. You may think you have a deal, but sometimes making the transaction is the trickiest part. Bernadette Wyman is a woman worn by her name, looking and sounding precisely like what a scholar of medieval English ought to be. Slight, stooped, pale-complected, a bundle of steel-wool hair stabbed in place by unmatched chopsticks and an upright knot atop her slightly-pointed head. Of course no one notices her. It would be uncomfortable to be caught paying attention to someone so obviously used to being ignored. Head down, murmuring thanks in the direction of the porter, she proffers a paltry tip that reflects her lack of experience with travel and value. The minute the room door swings closed behind the young man, Bernadette Wyman is replaced by the posture-perfect efficiency of station's coordinator. It is 1.30 a.m., and she has contacted the client, or at least a representative, and set up an exchange. She slips off her shoes and skirt and surveys her surroundings. They have given her what she asked for, a room at the end of the corridor. It's no trouble accommodating those whose fear of the unexpected makes them want to be near the fire escape or stairwell. Before coordinator permits herself to rest, she slips over to the entrance and lays a two-inch strip of pinkish flex tape out along the base of the door. It is a sound detector, capable of picking up even the tentative sound produced by delicate touch and transmitting the amplified tone to the earbuds she's wearing. Alarm in place, she returns to the bed, swings her feet up, and lays her head on the pillow. With her mind off, she slips into a restive half-sleep where her altered consciousness waits for word of the next move. Two hours is plenty of time to get fresh, she assures herself. Plenty of time. Friday, 3.59 GMT-8 Inside her head, an alarm sounds. Now. Coordinator stands up, dresses quickly, and steps into the musty-smelling hallway, where she punches for the elevator that will send her down to the third floor. Once there, she walks along the stifling, narrow hall and waves a smart card past the security pad of the housekeeping office. The door gives a telltale click, and she moves quickly inside, flipping over to infrared on her contacts as she steps away from the door. She scans the room and finds the optical terminal towards the back of the room behind a desk. She squats down and pulls a handheld from her bag, connecting its IR code to the wall socket. The hotel's run-of-the-mill corporate AI security algorithm offers a brief and feeble defense, but her software overwhelms it and she quickly gains access to the building's operational backbone, alarm systems, status, surveillance, climate control, lighting, kitchen, etc. The office phone purrs, an identifiable number from right here in the hotel. She picks it up. Don't tell me you got stuck in traffic, she gloats. That's maybe the only thing I'm not worried about right now, answers replies Kurt, all business. We set? Yeah. Delivery on the roof, VTOL deck, 5 a.m. You got immobile? Check your surveillance on the kitchen. She taps the handheld, arriving at a security cam view of the kitchen. Panning around the wall until she sees a delivery man, his back turned to the camera, hat snugged backward, thug style over the ears, talking at the wall mounted. He's standing behind a large push cart, the lumpy bulk of which is covered in bed linens. I like the serviceman look, coordinator mumbles wryly. That hat, though. Answer reaches back and tips the bill of his cap downward. Thanks for the fashion tips. I'll loiter here for a bit and run him up in the service elevator. Appreciate it if you keep an eye on things. Uh-huh, no problem, coordinator murmurs. Got the code key and account splicer spun up. We should have full payment in hand and ready to shuffle at the same time you make the handoff. Trip it the second you get the transfer, he mutters. These boys are working an angle. I can feel it. No worries. Counting's on top of it. We'll get the money or they don't get their guy. Running the show gives me something to do besides snooping the housekeeping accounts. Good to know, the delivery man nods. 
I have this intuitive sense that housekeeping isn't your core interest. Yeah, well, you'll never know for sure, will you? Coordinator snipes and clips the end button on her phone. Back to work. She sets the surveillance system to alert her when Answer leaves the kitchen zone and sets about completing the triple blind for transfer of the cash. Friday, 419 GMT-8. After her ragged, skin-soaking escape from the crash scene, Three begins making her way along the river up towards the parklands. At least there's a fair number of people there, she thinks, and probably none of them too likely to be welcoming of corporate interests. A decent place to get lost and maybe get back to something more familiar as well. This time of day, the only place to get the kind of information she's in need of is an all-night Scottish bakery in the Pearl, which has the additional benefit of offering some much-needed sustenance after the night's events. The place is run by an aging earth firster who's sympathetic to the ecotage groups, and usually knows just a little more than he should if he's as retired as he claims to be. It's easy enough to find. Just follow your nose toward the smell of the deep fat fryer. Three strolls in and steps up to the counter. Help you, miss? The server perks up around a steamy glass of coffee. Two onion brideys and a lucasade, please? The server turns for a moment to record the order and brings back a plastic bottle and a greasy newspaper-wrapped bundle. Anything else for you? Uh, yeah, three says. Hamish in tonight? It's a little late. The clerk hesitates, giving the new customer a more careful once-over. You know you? Just tell him someone's here who also remembers the Battle of Bannockburn, she says. The clerk offers a quizzical expression, but moves off toward the back of the yurt-like shop. Three steps over to a standing counter and wolfs down the food. It's always better to eat a brighty quickly, she thinks. It prevents you from examining the contents too carefully. A meaty hand claps her on the shoulder as she's polishing off the drink. Well, now, if it isn't my Suzette, if that's what you're still using, Missy. The big man hands her a wad of bills. Food's on the house lost, but it's a bit late for eating, isn't it? Even an establishment as fine as this one, I mean. He waves a hand at the tented superstructure. Nice to see you, Hamish, Three says. Let's face it, it's never too late for a bridey. Hamish laughs heartily. Aye, your mother thought you well there. Right, right, Station Three smiles. But seriously, um, I need a little info and quick, if you've got it. Ask away, says Hamish. Do I can? Three lowers her voice slightly and leans in toward the taller man. I need to know where the backcountry contact site is this week, and I need to get there tonight. Ooh, out of town on that quick, are we? Hamish nods a question that goes unasked. Never mind, never mind. He waves his hand. Luke, the contact site is one thing, all right, but I'd watch myself if I were you. Some of those newer lads and lasses are not the finest folk if you take my meaning. Warning duly noted, three mutters impatiently. Please, just tell me. Hamish gives her a long, parentally admonishing look and sighs. All right, 2240 King Street, upstairs. Don't tarry on your way and it's not exactly Beverly fucking Hills. The young brunette stands and grabs Hamish's shoulder. Hamish, you're the best. Next time, dinner's on me. Sure, lass, sure, he nods. Just take care now. He winks and watches as she walks out. Then he follows as far as the doorway, keeping an eye on the pleasing young woman as she moves away through thinning pedestrian traffic around a corner and out of sight. Friday, 5 o'clock, GMT-8. As the clock ticks over, Answer muscles the push cart out of the kitchen and shoves it over to the service elevator. He punches VTOL level. A rhythmic humming begins to sound deep in his throat. Its frequency is slow, and his body begins to relax as the vibrations of the ancient wordless ohm pass through his entire being. Closing his eyes, he distance views the roof from above. There is an agitated pooling of green at the center of his vision, 
Off to its right stand two blocky rectangles emitting the scent of rusting steel. Three cream-colored posts shimmer at the boundary of the green pool. Two others wobble off to the right of the blocks. A gray lump dominates the scene to the left. As the elevator rises, the pooled green ripples, and its hue slides into blue. The bird is down, and the tan poles are moving away from the color of circle that is the wind. Answer opens his eyes, flexes his hands, slowly feeling every muscle and nerve, every tendon unwinding in his arms. Fingers automatically check to make sure things on the cart are in order. His senses are so jacked up that the sound of the turbines and the beat of their wash on the still-closed doors is nearly as violent as a physical assault. He takes a single deep breath, and as he releases it, all conscious thought drops away. His body takes over as the doors slide wide. Out on the windswept landing pad, three slightly stooped men advance toward the delivery man and his cargo. They are squinting into the brilliant halo of light cast by the halon bulbs hung over the service elevator door. One of them raises an arm to fend off the glare. The other two just take it. Answer raises his right hand, palm up. All three stop coming. The thwop, thwop, thwop of the VTOL's turbine blades grinds up any words, but everybody knows what stop means. Answer whips off the sheet and spins the cart broadside to the men. The one with his arm raised breaks off from the group and walks up to the cart. He nods to no one in particular and smiles at the delivery man. Answer stands his ground, puts his thumbs together, and sweeps his hand to the side. Done. A bullet slams into the cart. The man closest to Answer begins to swing the arm shielding his eyes down and toward the delivery man. A short pistol is palmed in that hand. Instead of leaping back toward the lift, Answer drives behind the hotel cart as two men emerge from the cover of cooling stacks on the roof. Five of them now, all moving forward with guns raised and firing. Answer jams his hand into the empty space between Target's body and the void where he's left the string-triggered gas guns pointing out at hip level. He seizes the cart and begins squeezing off rounds. A cloud of white dust rises from the side of the cart and the near man clutches his abdomen as his body flies back and a gout of blood leaps away from his groin. He collapses six or so feet away, his anguished cries lost in the ambient din. The noise is tremendous, rotor blades, pistol shots. The four remaining men may be shouting, cursing, but no one can hear anything. Answer's weapon makes next to no noise in this environment. Driven by a highly compressed gas mixture, its deadly effect seems to have no origin. One of the four gunmen grabs his chest as he is jerked off his feet and sent back. Another yard and I'm back to the elevator, Answer tells himself. The thwock thwock of bullets smacking into something solid jars the air. The shock of their impact is telegraphed through the cart to Answer's hands. He's inside now, crouching behind the cart, which is still outside, firing, punching the down button. Another one of the running men stops, a shocked look on his face as his knee decides to retreat, taking the rest of his leg with it behind him. He tumbles down, mouth open in what is probably a howl of pain. The remaining two hitters are prone now, lying in the dark wind struck suddenly by a tardy awareness of exposure. No longer focused on murder, but on reducing their stature as targets. The elevator door slides closed, slowly squeezing the reach of deadly fire until bullets ring off firewall steel. Answer bows his gratitude for the sheet Lexan impact bumpers he salvaged from the hotel's freight elevators a couple hours before. An inch and a half of plastic, with a fist-sized firing hole burned in it on the gas range, was all he needed to remain alive. So what if it's hokey, he tells himself, checking any wounds that might have gone unnoticed during the heat of battle. It worked. He moves quickly now, shucking off the delivery uniform, working his way down to the sport coat and slacks underneath. The elevator is no place to take up residence, so he drops out at third floor from the top and breaks for the stairwell. 
His mind begins working full tilt now as he jumps downstairs four at a time, reclaiming the driver's seat from his action body. This is not kosher. Kidnapping is a straightforward commerce. There's an etiquette, a form to it. You don't have to be a guild member to know that. If you make the snap, you're good. Evidently, these guys do not think the rule holds for them. Not here, not this time. But why would anybody want to kill the contractor unless it was at the time of commission? There's way too much risk that the target might get hurt. Kidnapping only makes sense if the target stays fresh. It's common sense. A successfully ransomed hostage is an available hostage. There are a finite numbers of elites, and everybody knows you have to protect the resource to do any repeat business. That's the nature of the work. Snag them, bag them, snag them again. Why would anybody want the takedown crew dead? The lights die. It doesn't matter. All the intellectual noise compresses down, filed for later. Emergency lights flash on, answer winces. They're wickedly bright. Bad guy is hoping to catch him in the elevator, and barring that, somewhere on the way down. The floor lights will be out, which means they're using infrareds. He hears footsteps in the stairwell, doors sneezing shut. Attempts at whispered communication sound up through the stairwell shaft as if they were on a PA system. Answer knows better than to hesitate with bad company coming, and plenty of it, apparently. There must have been a team in the hotel as well as the one on the roof. He doubles back up the stairway to the last floor he passed. Fifteen. Rec facilities. He bangs open the numbered door and begins stripping off as he runs, stuffing shirt and jacket into a trash can in the lounge area, kicking his shoes and pants under the staff desk. He drops his gas shooters into a towel bin beside the swinging doors as he breaks through to the pool area and dives in, stark naked, and wondering, were those guys going to dust Target? That dude should be good. He was screened behind the Lexan. If he turns up dead now, there is no accident in that. Doesn't matter, his discipliner whispers. No more speculation. Just concentrate now. He draws a slow, deep breath, filling every facet of himself with life-giving air. Dropping below the surface, Answer empties his mind of all sensation save the placental comfort of warm water as he drops down, wedges himself snugly into a corner at the deep end of the pool, and flicking out the light of self, disappears. Friday, 5.04 GMT-8 Coordinator sits stock still in the sudden dark. Neither her mind nor her pulse race. The only source of illumination, a pair of credit card-sized panel displays, cast a cool wash over her placid features. She takes a moment to savor the sudden quiet of her surroundings. The background hum native to all large buildings is absent, like being in a room with someone who stopped breathing. You only become aware of their respiration when it's gone. Well, she muses, they got the systems board. She stands up and pulls the long pleated wool skirt she has laid out on the bed up over her legs and snucks it around her waist. Her own short brown hair is pinned beneath a black wig that gives her head the shape of a middle-aged woman with conservative tastes. She wears a dark-shaded lipstick and glasses whose oval shape falls into the antiquities category of fashion. She steps into a pair of elevator shoes that lend four inches to her five foot six and a half. All of what she is now carrying fits in the large handbag and small overnight makeup box she has set beside the bed. She lies back for a few minutes before enacting the next piece of Plan B. Friday. 505 GMT minus 8. The hunters are here. Answer feels them as they creep into the pool area. Their movements are cautious, efficient, professional. The thermal mass of water is an effective initial barrier to their infrared goggles, but under the cool surface of the shallow end, Answer is ensuring that he won't be seen by eye or device. He has gathered around him many fields of energy, more than he used on Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and these stay much closer to his body. 
Answer has never understood any practical reason for the differences between these and the circles of confusion, but they pertain whenever he asks for this kind of assistance. Ovals of light circle his body with increasing speed as he curls tightly in a ball on the bottom of the pool. The team is giving the room a thorough examination, and they are missing nothing but that which they most desire. Answer is gone for now, hiding, in a manner of speaking, in plain sight. Friday, 5.07 GMT-8 On the third floor, three men gather at the sides of a room door. One of their targets is in the room. She's clever with feint and counterfeint, but their informants say it's the Englishwoman they're after. The team leader holds out a battery-operated sniffer. It reads the air coming from under the door. From this slight flow, they can determine if there are chemical explosives or weapons-grade materials inside. The wand glows green across the bar. A sound detector extended alongside comes up with nothing more than the slow rhythm of breathing associated with someone deeply asleep. The men communicate in sign language, keeping the sound of their approach and withdrawal to an absolute minimum. Hotel doors are made of metal, and if the woman inside is as good as she's rumored to be, there won't be a loose lock. No time is wasted on exploring that possibility. They blow the door with an explosive round. Surging into the room, they blow the bed to bits before realizing it's empty. Fragments of door are embedded in the walls. Empty bags lie next to a tiny tape recorder on the wash basin sideboard. The three of them stand looking mutely at one another as a quiet reclaims the space. Friday, 5.07 GMT-8. Coordinator prepared the room with a signal chip mounted on the upper inside piece of the doorstop, designed to trip when the door opens. It has triggered the release of a volatile mixture of hydrogen and oxygen from two small, pressurized cylinders taped to the bathroom door jamb, facing into the bedroom. After about eight seconds inside the room, there is a soft but disconcerting click, giving the assault team just enough time to glance at one another in surprise. The time-delayed spark ignites, and the gases explode in a sheet of flame, searing everything in the room with a flash of nearly a thousand degrees. Three intruders are dead instantly, their lungs fried. The sprinklers trip to prevent a secondary fire, and the room returns to a calm once again, with only the drip of water, the odor of burnt flesh, and three corpses to indicate that anything untoward has happened. Friday, 5.07 GMT-8 Answer, at the bottom of the pool, feels a soft but palpable bump, as if the building hopped up briefly and then settled back. Not right for an earthquake, Answer is sure. He can feel the voices of the team hunting him as they talk quickly to each other, but he can't make out specifics. But the feelings carry a tenor. They're worried about something, and whatever it is, it seems to be giving answer the break he needs. They're regrouping. Once together, they move off quickly, heading back toward the stairwell, letting the door bang shut behind them. After a moment, answer uncurls and floats to the surface, letting go a ragged breath and gasping a bit as he climbs from the pool. He wicks water off his arms and legs as he slips back toward the gym to retrieve his clothes. Friday, 5.07 GMT-8 Coordinator feels the shockwave and hears the explosion. Time to go. She steps into the darkened corridor from the second of the other two rooms she had rented, all under separate names as a matter of course. She strides by the smoking entry to the room she'd occupied earlier without a backward glance. Never leave yourself less than two paths to safety. The emergency lights are down now, too. A little late on the programming front, but better late than never, and so on. Her own flashlight lets her find her way to the stairwell, and she emerges at the rear of the parking garage, unnoticed. She flashes her light, and a small two-person electric car pulls out of a parking space and slides up to her. A young woman is driving. Are you Miss Raider? The woman asks, flashing a medallion. I'm from Gossride. 
Uh, yes, Gordon realized. Thanks so much for coming at this ungodly hour. She settles into the passenger seat. Looks like the power must have gone out. The driver comments as they pass out of the parking area, swing onto the street, and begin pulling away. You'd think a place as fancy as that would have some sort of backup. Isn't that always the way nowadays? Corey Nertisks. Isn't that always the way? Friday, 5.38 GMT minus 8. Falsity can be full-time work, and for Station 1, there is no relief from the series of lies that make up his daily life. This man is a fisherman, a night watchman, uh, there is no title for the work he does during his disappearances. His wife and children tolerate the endless chain of deceptions that embody their paint-by-number breadwinner out of a soupy blend of necessity, self-protection, and compassion. As he throws the bow line and shoves away from the low decking of the quay, one's shoulders sag under the yoke of fatigue that is his life. It's two days since he's really slept, but right now, there does not seem to be a better or safer place than right on the boat. He compensates for exhaustion with precision, moving with deliberate care along the deck as he makes his way to the cabin. Once he is outside the harbor mouth on the open ocean, he can set the anchor and get some rest, but not yet. Buoys marking the narrow channel slip by on the starboard side as he throttles up into the current. The Columbia River sets herself under the steel-hulled longliner and sweeps her towards the sea. One looks to his left, letting weary eyes settle like soft hands on the house-pocked bluff of Astoria as his vessel slips below it on the tongue of river that will spit him into the belly of the Pacific. It's a bad day, but it's a good day. Bad because there's no back-end lump payment on a broken snap. Good because he is here to complain about that. His back aches slightly. There's a soreness in his neck along the left shoulder from where the four-point restraint did its job saving his life. These momentary discomforts are all that remain of his hairball driving experience in Portland less than eight hours back. What a waste. But what's done is done. He checks his instruments. Voices on the radio bleat about a wad of salmon 50 miles north of the Narrows. He smiles to himself. Nobody tells the truth in this work either. The boat passes through the mouth of the Columbia. Once into open ocean, one sets the autopilot and curls up on the narrow bench in the wheelhouse. Gotta get a life, he mumbles to himself as the warmth of the cabin heater draws him into the soft pad of a much-needed sleep. There is no collision to wake Station One, alert him to danger. He lies on his mat, lost in the relief of dreams, until the very moment he is snatched awake by hands on his arms and legs. He struggles futilely as four of the men hold him, haul him, handle him. His protests and pleas mix with the atoms of countless unheeded cries for pity that have fallen on deaf ears since time immemorial. Workmen carry the squirming body from the forward cabin back to the stern. A fifth man is there, deploying fishing line. This man has let out a dozen lines that stream down into the sullen green of the ocean, trailing a thousand feet behind the trawler. One is hoisted up onto the deck rail, and the drum operator stops the reel long enough to allow his associates to wrap one of Station One's legs with a loop of line. The men are obliged to hold on to their sobbing captive for only an instant longer once the drum resumes its roll. He is jerked away, and drawn underwater in less than a second. There is no time to breathe or think about what he might have done differently with his life. Not a moment to savor or regret, nor to wonder who those nameless enemies are. There is not even an instant of grace for him to consider what will become of his sullen cardboard cutout of a family before he is consumed, lifeless and flaccid, by the depths. It will be seven hours before someone boards the wallowing hulk of the Bell Pacifico and discovers that her skipper has suffered a fatal accident. The 50-year-old salmoner that finds Station One's body 
can't help feeling a twinge of annoyance at the poor bastard's bad luck, getting drowned in this particular spot. Just gonna provide more fuel for the old wives' tales about how misfortune sits hovering off Cape Disappointment like a low-lying fog. We will be back next week, with Chapter 4 of Criminal Magic. Please join us, and if you like what you hear, leave a review, and tell your friends about this podcast.